shortly before the 2016 presidential election, I had some really fascinating conversations with a friend who was a supporter of Donald Trump. This person was college educated, relatively well off, small business person, and she wasn't a Christian. One of the things she mentioned to me was that she supported the rights of LGBTQ people and that she supported Trump because she felt that gays and lesbians were in danger from conservative and extremist Muslims who, in their countries of origin, she argued, killed their gays. Since Trump campaigned on stopping immigration from Muslim countries, my friend argued that this strategy would keep gays and lesbians safe. Trump wasn't really a conservative, she would say, so he would be a great ally for LGBTQ Americans. I thought this was an interesting line of argument. You see, I'm an ally in progress, meaning that I support the LGBTQ community, but since I am a straight, cisgendered woman, I'm aware that my sexual orientation and gender identity are forms of privilege, and I can never understand everything people in the queer community go through. And I'm sure that there are times when I fall short in my understanding, my language, but I am always open to being corrected so I can be a stronger ally. That's what I mean by an ally in progress. I don't ever want to be arrogant enough to believe that I have all the answers for a community I support, but I'm not a part of. But in any case, I have friends and family who are LGBTQ and I support them in their freedom to be their full and actual selves. At the same time, I also grew up in Detroit, which has a suburb, Dearborn, with the highest population of people of Arab descent outside the Middle East itself. Seeing Arabic script on store signs and hearing the language on the street, hearing men greet each other with assalamu alaikum, and seeing women in hijab walking around Fairlane Mall with their friends, that's home to me, not a reason to sound a terror alert. I grew up around Muslim Americans. We had family friends from all over the world, including places where Islam is practiced. I also went to college and grad school with people who either grew up in Muslim societies or practiced Islam themselves. I even interacted with Muslim children as a substitute teacher in Warren, Michigan. I knew that the vast majority of Muslim Americans want to live their lives, work, support their families, and raise their children in a safe environment just like the rest of us. The idea that we need to keep Muslims out of the country to protect gay people was an interesting argument to be sure. I think it's a problematic argument as well, but interesting. Yet, as Trump's presidency has demonstrated, even this, that Trump has any concern for the LGBTQ community has been proven a complete lie. And while some worry about extremist Islamic ideology and terror in the wake of 9-11 and subsequent terror attacks, it seems increasingly apparent that we should be even more concerned about the extremist ideology and terror of white supremacy supported by evangelical Christians. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Ever since the 2016 presidential election, a lot has been made of Donald Trump's base 
And a lot of what is thrown around by political pundits on both sides of the aisle is that the reason they voted for Donald Trump is economic anxiety. And that pointing out any racial component to support for Trump is divisive or pushing away people who would otherwise vote Democrat. I, for one, have never thought this to be true, and I still don't. What always stuck out to me about the Trump base were two things. First, Trump was vocal about his negative attitude towards immigrants, especially Latino immigrants and immigrants from majority Muslim countries. He also has had a decades-long history of racist attitudes and discrimination against Black Americans, stemming back to the trouble he got into for housing discrimination in the 1970s, as well as his continued demonization of the Central Park Five, who had been wrongfully convicted of murdering a jogger in Central Park, even after the exoneration of these men through DNA evidence. Trump never hid who he really was, yet for Trump supporters, this was not a deal breaker. Second, and I think this probably goes with the first, white evangelical Christians have been Trump's most loyal constituency. 81% of white evangelical voters voted for him in 2016, and this constituency still sticks by him. It takes a lot of mental gymnastics, a lot of cognitive dissonance to go from insisting on morality in the Oval Office 20 years ago to ignoring scandal after scandal from someone who is extremely unrepentant and even proud of his bad acts and shows no positive fruit of the spirit, yet is somehow doing God's will. When I wrote my dissertation several years ago and successfully defended it in 2012, the data I analyzed suggested that unlike the prevailing thought in the political science field that race only matters for black Protestants, white Christians, particularly white evangelicals, were motivated not just by religion, but by race. On a personal level, I don't find it surprising either. I was part of the evangelical community at a time when there was a huge push for what was called racial reconciliation. This was late 90s through the 2000s. The idea was that a number of evangelical leaders were troubled by the racial divide in the American church, which had in fact existed for much of America's history and initiatives were being made to reach across the aisle. A number of Christian denominations, such as the Southern Baptist Convention and the Assemblies of God, as well as the African Methodist Episcopal Church, exist today specifically due to race-related splits. In my own experience, what I'd found was that there were many evangelicals that truly had a heart to see the different races come together. And over time, evangelicalism has become more racially and ethnically diverse. Evangelicalism has resisted the decline that other major Christian traditions, such as mainline denominations and Roman Catholicism, not because they're spawning more white Christians, but because of the influx of Latino, Asian, and Black believers. This quest for diversity within evangelicalism did bear positive fruit. The problem was, that it was expected that racial reconciliation would only happen on their terms. A number of these white evangelical pastors who have told their flock that an anti-abortion agenda was the only important political issue were not just speaking to fellow Caucasians, they were speaking to diverse congregations. If you've always dominated the conversation, it's time to listen to other people. 
but it's hard to listen to why different people, including diverse groups of Christians, have different political priorities and how these are no less supported in the Bible than a pro-life stance on abortion, sometimes even more so. It's hard to acknowledge that you might not have all the answers. And I think that's the hard part about reconciliation in a diverse space. The other issue with racial reconciliation is that the term itself assumes that there was a relationship between whites and blacks that was healthy in the first place. When I was doing my research, I came across a series of tweets by Andre E. Johnson, who is a communication studies professor at the University of Memphis. His Twitter handle is at A.E. Johnson, Ph.D. I'll read you some of what he said, and this is, I think, very important. Quote, Anybody who has read any of my work or followed me on Twitter know that I am highly skeptical of the term racial reconciliation. Hear me, though. I have no problem with reconciliation. I do believe people can be reconciled. However, reconciliation can truly happen only if the people had a relationship together in the first place. What I mean by this is that reconciliation is about two parties coming back together and restoring their relationship. In short, if there was never a relationship in the first place, reconciliation cannot happen. Thus, when we speak of racial reconciliation, we assume that the races had a relationship that was healthy and wholesome at one time. As we continue to commemorate hashtag MLK50, we are going to hear more calls to racial reconciliation. The argument is that if both white Christians and Christians of color could sit down and hash out differences, if they could just come together, be honest with each other, then the ministry of reconciliation can happen. But in the spirit of speaking the truth in love, I must ask, be reconciled back to what? Back to the time when there was a debate that people who looked like me did not have souls? Back to the time when slavery was blessed by God? Back to the time when separate but equal was the law of the land? Back to the time when Jim and Jane Crow ruled not only the law, but the hearts of white people? And besides, how can we be reconciled when 70% of my Christian white sisters and brothers do not believe there is a problem with policing in communities of color? How can we be reconciled when the very mention of the phrase, Black Lives Matter, frustrates people without ever thinking about the reason why I have to say Black Lives Matter? How can we be reconciled when studies show that even in multiracial and multi-ethnic churches, as the article showed that whiteness is still the norm? How can we be reconciled when black truth and black testimony is not believed? How can we be reconciled when there was never a time that we were on the same page together? End quote. And so by the time of the most recent presidential election, this diversity within evangelicalism was falling apart. The embrace of authoritarianism is about fear. Fear of diversity, fear of change, fear of being challenged. Much of evangelicalism is built on the darker parts of America's racist past. And as evangelicalism itself is diversifying, there's a reckoning on a horizon. And it's easier for white evangelicals, those who have been the primary voices in the tradition, 
to force others out than take new perspectives in. Back in 1963, while visiting Western Michigan University, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, We must face the fact that in America, the church is still the most segregated major institution in America. At 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, when we stand and sing Christ has no east or west, we stand at the most segregated hour in this nation. This is tragic. And it's still that way. Most churches are still segregated by race. More than 8 in 10 congregations are made up of predominantly one race. Now this isn't unique to evangelicals. This is the case regardless of Christian tradition or denomination. But evangelicals in particular are more politically conservative than other Americans, not just religiously conservative, but socially conservative in terms of race, ethnicity, and gender. Part of that is that evangelicalism has a strong authoritarian bent. And also because evangelicals historically were concentrated in the South, which has a history of slavery and legalized racial segregation. As I've mentioned in earlier episodes, the modern pro-life movement has its roots in support for Southern segregation academies run by people such as the late Jerry Falwell of moral majority fame. As much as evangelicals have tried to run away from a racist past, it's always under the surface. So the evangelical alliance with white supremacy is nothing new to me. It seems that much of the support for Donald Trump and the current Republican agenda is fueled by fear of diversity. According to U.S. Census projections, by 2045, which is in less than 30 years, whites are expected to be the minority in the United States. This is due to lower birth rates among white Americans, higher birth rates among people of color, and immigration from non-European countries. White evangelicals support Donald Trump because they feel like they're winning. Splitting refugee families, caging children, leaving them vulnerable to assault and sickness, deporting families to be killed in their countries of origin, and adopting out refugee children who are still here to white families here in the States, taking away the voting rights of Black Americans and Native Americans in the name of voter integrity, protecting the police state from any responsibility for killing unarmed and legally armed civilians without due process, shaming women and men who are sexually assaulted, rolling back reproductive rights for women, forcing everyone to abide by the religious objections of a few. This is what they wanted, every piece of it. This was their idea of religious freedom and saving America. Church and state go hand in hand. The most conservative of white evangelicals wanted a theocratic state that would insulate them from the inevitability of diversity and societal change and the discomfort and hard work change would bring. It's the comfort of authoritarianism and pushback on the rights of those who don't look like them, believe like them, or live like them. And they blamed it on outside forces, civil rights and racial integration, women's rights and feminism, LGBT rights and the gay agenda, religious pluralism, new waves of non-white immigrants coming in with ideas and beliefs they tagged anti-American. What I find striking is that the drivers of white evangelical support for an authoritarian, theocratic state 
with an undercurrent of white supremacist terror are similar to why some of the most conservative Muslims are drawn to the Wahhabis, an ultra-conservative Muslim sect that runs Saudi Arabia, and other strains of ultra-conservative Islam that have given rise to groups like the Taliban. Except this time, the religious extremism they warned us about is coming from inside the house. Election day is around the corner. In some states, you can still get registered to vote if you haven't already, and a few states have same-day registration, so go to vote.org or your state's Board of Elections website for details. Also, some states have early voting, so take advantage of that if it's available to you, and look into absentee ballots if you aren't going to be available on election day. If you're registered to vote, but you're not showing up on the voter rolls, still go to the polls. Request a provisional ballot, as you are entitled to by law. This is a public service announcement from Potstirer Podcast. Democracy is under attack, but remember, if voting didn't matter, there wouldn't be people working hard to take it away from us. So don't just get mad, vote. Since taking office, here are some of the deplorable things the Trump administration has done. In 2017, the U.S., along with several countries including Iraq and Saudi Arabia, went on record against the U.N. resolution condemning the death penalty for homosexual acts. Trump has supported authoritarian leaders such as Erdogan and Duterte and dictators like Kim Jong-un, whose regimes have needlessly oppressed and killed their own people, as well as foreigners in some cases. North Korea was responsible for the death of a U.S. national and Cincinnati native, Otto Warmbier, as well as countless other people, and they routinely starve their own people while their leadership remains well-fed. Yet Trump wants to claim a Nobel Prize for his friendship with a murderous tyrant. Here at home, one of the first things Trump did once he took office was cut off immigration from several majority Muslim countries, including refugees from war-torn Syria. Trump's administration aimed to push transgender members of the military out of the service and wrote an amicus brief supporting the cake baker in Colorado who refused to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. Trump and his Secretary of State, Jeff Sessions, are punishing refugees from Central and South America for doing something that is perfectly legal, ripping apart families, placing children in detention centers, and coercing refugee families to give up their claims for asylum without any hearing in order to be reunited with their children. But that often means they are being deported, deported to die. And meanwhile, the children still left here in the States are being adopted out to American families where their family ties, culture, and past are simply erased. Trump also has made it clear that he supports a police state that lacks accountability. He has spoken out at rallies, including ones of police officers, condemning Colin Kaepernick and the NFL kneeling protests that have been aimed at highlighting the disproportionate number of murders of unarmed and legally armed black people by police. Trump, whose father was arrested as a young man as part of the Ku Klux Klan, has tacitly supported Nazis. After Charlottesville last year, where Nazis beat up counter-protesters and murdered Heather Heyer, he claimed that both sides were at fault and equated Nazis with those who oppose Nazis. He has stated the only regret he has had was when he was pressured into giving a speech condemning Nazis in the KKK. 
the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He nominated Brett Kavanaugh, a drunken frat boy turned federal judge with a shady financial and personal past, to the U.S. Supreme Court and pushed him through confirmation by shaming and denigrating sexual assault survivors and turning an FBI investigation into Kavanaugh's behavior into a complete sham. 81% of white evangelicals support Trump because he is giving them everything they want. Some will say it's about abortion only, or it's about Supreme Court nominees. Sure, that's part of it, but eh, it can't just be about abortion or the Supreme Court if so many have excused everything else Trump has done. Others will call it economic anxiety, but Trump's policies have not really helped those outside the ultra-rich, so it can't just be that. According to the Public Religion Research Institute, white evangelicals are more likely than other groups to support the border wall and less likely to support a way to citizenship for undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children, otherwise known as dreamers, compared to the rest of the population. White evangelicals are also more likely than other groups to believe that the immigration process is currently easy to navigate, and a plurality believe that immigrants are a burden rather than our strength. White evangelicals are also most likely of other groups to believe that the criminal justice system treats racial minorities and whites equally. 57% believe this to be the case. They are also the only religious group whose majority believes that police officers treat people of color the same as whites, as 62%. Unless we believe it's merely a generational issue. Evangelical leadership's authoritarian bent is being brought to bear on the next generation. On the more extreme end is the Quirrell movement, an extremely conservative evangelical movement that encourages married Christian couples to have as many children as possible. No birth control, no contraception, and definitely no abortion. The Duggar family, the family with 19 children who starred in 19 Kids and Counting, are probably its most famous adherents. There are several reasons cited for quiverful couples to have as many children as they're blessed with, including the biblical directive to be fruitful and multiply, the call to create the next generation of Christians to be the missionaries or foot soldiers for the Christian cause, and concerns about diversity in the West. Seeing a falling white population in relation to other races and ethnicities as a cause for alarm. Common features of the Quirrell movement include strict patriarchy, complementarianism, or the idea that men and women have different roles, as well as homeschooling, conservative dress, and financial responsibility. Many Quirrell couples, including the Duggars, have been influenced by Bill Gothard, one-time head of the Institute for Basic Life Principles. Gothard has been a leading advocate of purity culture as well, advising courtship rather than dating, stating that fathers should be involved in their daughters' relationships to the point where a dad is expected to have veto power when a man seeks to marry his daughter. Now, if you listen to episode 36, where I discuss purity culture and evangelicalism in a little more detail, I talked about Josh Harris, author of the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which was a major staple in evangelical circles around 15, 20 years ago. 
I mentioned that Josh Harris had limited dating experience when he wrote the book. Similar to that, when I was doing research for this episode and I was looking more into Bill Gothard, I didn't realize that while he is advising married couples and families with many, many children on how to live their lives, he himself has never been married and doesn't have kids. So I found the fact that there's a subset of evangelicals who raise their kids based on the tenets of someone who has no experience with any of this. Really weird. But the authoritarianism and radicalization of evangelicals is not just among the quiverful. Much of this mindset can be found in evangelical Christian schools, including Christian colleges. A number of evangelical Christian colleges, which once displayed tolerance for diversity of thought among faculty and student body alike, over the past few years have become a lot more authoritarian. Scholar Christopher Stroop, a leading voice in the evangelical community, wrote about the increasing authoritarianism and push towards extreme conservatism in Christian colleges, leading to faculty being pushed out as well as students for not towing the company line regarding certain stances, particularly regarding homosexuality. According to Stroop, strict oversight over student newspapers is a common way evangelical colleges enforce orthodoxy and control the message. And often, students and faculty alike are stifled in their desire to be vocal regarding support of LGBTQ students. Much of this has to do with funding, particularly funding from right-wing benefactors, as well as a desire to be an option for socially conservative students. But in any case, these schools are becoming places to indoctrinate young minds into their own version of Christian faith without any freedom to think or live for themselves. And here's something else Stroop says that I think makes a lot of sense. He makes this distinction between positive liberty and negative liberty. Positive liberty, the freedom to do X, and negative liberty, the freedom from X. Negative liberty is associated with democracy, while positive liberty is associated with authoritarianism. In the evangelical context, religious freedom means that you are able to be free to follow what they believe to be God's will and essentially force others to be free. However, negative liberty, being free from, say, religion or being forced to follow what they think is God's will, leads to chaos and slavery as there is no basis in their view for law or moral values. So essentially, even the idea of freedom itself for evangelicals is very authoritarian and not actually freeing. And it's the kind of mentality, the kind of underlying view of what it means to be free that leads to not only authoritarianism, but dominionism. The best way I can describe dominionism is that it's essentially an evangelical word for Christian theocracy. Dominionism refers to a set of ideologies that seek to institute a nation governed by Christians based on their own personal understanding of biblical law. It does exist on a spectrum from those who simply believe America is a Christian nation to those who explicitly want the U.S. government run based on biblical principles, at least how they interpret those to be. This is a common ideology among evangelicals, particularly white evangelicals. Theocracy is on the menu. When we look at Islamic radicalization, extremist Muslims weren't responding to some nebulous call within the Quran 
for an external jihad against infidels. They were responding to the fear of what societal modernization and liberalization would bring. For example, prior to the rise of the Taliban in 1996, in Afghanistan, women in that society had more rights. They could be educated, they could delay having children, etc. The same with Iran. I'll post a few pictures, I think, on Instagram. But prior to the 1979 revolution, leading to the fall of the Shah and the rise of the Ayatollahs, Iranian society was more liberal. There was more equality between women and men. Women didn't have the same dress restrictions. They had access to education. The Iranian people had more access to media that encouraged different streams of thought and religious liberalism. But that changed. In these cases, a lot of it goes back to the Cold War and interference by the US and or the Soviet Union. These events led to societal destabilization, creating an opening for extreme religious conservative elements to take over these countries. What often happens to countries is that societal destabilization can leave a population vulnerable to its base instincts. People want to be more comfortable, especially if they're already used to having a degree of privilege in society. And if they feel like they're suffering, they're going to look for someone to blame. And they'll seek a way to achieve the feeling that all is right in the world once again. This gives rise to authoritarian elements with radical ideologies achieving power. In the U.S., the 2008 housing crisis, mass layoffs, and the slow recovery under America's first president of African descent had frustrated many Americans. And there were people to blame. Feminists, people of color, queer Americans, immigrants from non-European countries. These people were taking the jobs, taking the space, taking away the freedom of white evangelicals to not be PC anymore, meaning sharing bigoted thoughts publicly without negative feedback or backlash. Some of these people, some of these outsiders, were even showing up in their neighborhoods and their churches. An extremely socially conservative element has been here as an undercurrent for decades, even centuries. But in 2016, this was their opening to seize power. So like at other points in history in various places, authoritarian leadership rises to the top. In these authoritarian societies, demagoguery rises, women are oppressed and steered towards making more babies for the empire, the rights of ethnic and religious minorities and LGBTQ people are suppressed and under increasing attack, and there is an undercurrent of violence. The majority of terror attacks and resulting deaths in the U.S. are committed by right-wing, alt-right terrorists, more so than Islamic terror and much more so than left-wing terror. But for many Trump supporters, it's easier to focus on ISIS and Antifa than the Proud Boys and the other Nazi-sympathizing groups that are attacking and killing people here in the U.S. in much higher numbers. Of course, the vast majority of white evangelicals are not on board with terrorism. But when it's insanely difficult for the largest evangelical denomination in the U.S. to denounce the alt-right and white supremacist terror, that should get your attention. The thing to remember is that any belief system, any religion, any philosophy can be used for harm. Because when we're talking about worldview, when we're talking about something that people deeply believe in and people are willing to die for, 
is easy to manipulate for the sake of power. We need to be mindful of our own blind spots and be willing to call things what they are. Religious and nationalist extremism. Onward Christian soldiers, indeed. One of the elements of Christianity is the idea of living forever. And it's also a theme in the movie that's the subject of the latest episode of Falling in Love Montage. Helen and Valerie review the classic 1992 film, Death Becomes Her. It's an awesome episode about a very entertaining movie. But even if you haven't seen the movie, their in-depth commentary makes it seem like something worth watching. So definitely check out Falling in Love Montage, one of the wonderful podcasts on the Flying Machine Network. Listen and subscribe to Falling in Love Montage on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and most other podcatchers. Or go to their website, fallinginlovemontage.com. And for all Flying Machine Network shows, go to flyingmachine.network slash shows. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on iTunes or on Android. Go on potstirerpodcast.com slash download and the links are right there. If you subscribe, you can get new episodes once they come out. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us five stars and leave a review. And yes, the Potstirer Podcast discussion group is now live. Share stories and discuss current events and political issues in a fun space. So go to facebook.com slash Podcast and the link to the group is on the page. So join today. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine.